Welcome to the Denver Snuffer Podcast. This is the final part of an interview Denver did this past summer with Rick Bennett for his Gospel Tangents podcast, which is presented here in its entirety in this series. Okay, so I do want to kind of go back to uh, talk a little bit more about the remnant movement. Um, not to be confused, I should add, I, I previously had an interview with a guy named Jim Glenn Cannon. He was a, yeah. in the first presidency of the Remnant Church of Jesus Christ. Right. He's no longer part of that church. Um, oh. Interesting thing. They've actually split, and it was just kind of like Brigham and Sydney. Yeah. And he ended up more like Sydney and started his own church, Everlasting Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter days. Oh, wow. Yeah. So. Uh, How about the true and living, real, authentic? mostest, correctest version of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yeah. And I'm sure there's an acronym you can put together out of that that will spell <laughs> something obscene, probably. <laughs> but anyway, so you're... you're Look, I... It's kind of a yeah. movement that's kind of named... Do you have an official name for your no, church? No, no. It, there isn't a church. There isn't a church. Except in the sense that the church was defined in the revelation given to Joseph Smith. The church that existed were people that repented, came into the Lord, and were baptized. That's it. That's the definition of a church. And that definition preceded the organization in April of 1830. There were at least three different congregations or fellowships of people that existed before the, um, the incorporation took place in April of 1830, and all of them were considered uh, members of Christ's church because the definition was just repent, come unto me, be baptized in my name for remission of your sins. And that, if if you're going to say there's a church, that's it. We we don't require, I don't require, I don't know of anyone that says you have to leave the LDS church to accept the the uh, work that God has got underway today. I, I have said a Catholic priest could, could come and be baptized for the remission of his sins, accept the restoration, and go on his way and retain his status as a Catholic and a priest if he chose to do so. Methodists can join. Latter-day Saints can join. There's nothing to be done except have someone that um, has authority to baptize, baptize you, and um, uh, then the name of the person, because we're, we're required to keep track of the names, has to be submitted to another volunteer who's keeping what's called the recorder's clearinghouse. Uh, those names get given to him. At the end of a year, all of the names are alphabetized and they're put in for that calendar year and they're entered by hand into a book. There's no electronic version. No one can hack it. No one can go online and get into it. There's only one handwritten copy. If you want to give it to them by mailing it in to them, the mailed-in copy will be recorded. The mailed document will be destroyed. At the end of the year, all the records are destroyed and they're entered after having been entered into the book. And the only thing that that is done for is because the Lord requires that that book be maintained in order to present it at the uh, at the second coming 
as one of the things that we're accountable for keeping. We're accountable for keeping very few things, but that is one of them. And so repent, be baptized for the remission of sins, get your name recorded with the recorder's clearinghouse, that's it. Then you're part of it. And you can be a Mormon, um, Latter-day Saint, you can be a, a Jew, you can be whatever you want to be, but you have to accept the terms that the Lord has outlined in order to come aboard. And, and if you want to fellowship with others, there are informal gatherings of people that fellowship together. We're expected to pay tithe from surplus, not, not what's required to support you and your family, but of your excess, of your surplus, one-tenth is paid into the fellowship, and then the fellowship determines who among them has a need. And if someone among them has a need, then the tithe is used to help those who have health problems, medical bills, education problems, food, housing, transportation issues. They get spent inside the group to help and benefit those within the fellowship. It doesn't get gathered. There's no big slush fund. It gets used to help the poor. If there is an excess that ever accumulates in a fellowship, then ultimately we expect to build a temple and the funds can be donated for that purpose. But tithes are not used to support a hierarchy. Your religion should require that you sacrifice. If you are going to practice it, you should practice it as a person of faith, sacrificing to do the will of the Lord. No one gets remunerated for anything they do. Um, I gave a series of lectures. I had to personally pay to rent the facilities that uh, I used in order to give a series of lectures. People organize conferences now voluntarily. They rent the venue and they publicize the thing and they do all the work with volunteer efforts. And if there are any costs to be advanced, they advance them. If they ask me to help defray costs, I help. But no one's... I spent a lot of money of my own doing the things that I've done. No one's paid me anything for what it is I do. So somebody can join your movement and continue to go to the LDS church? Absolutely. And yeah. Hmm. A number of them have. In fact, some interesting, interestingly situated people have. Just one I wanted to clarify that... Um, as it, as it turns out, the website scripture.info, I-N-F-O, was available. All of the scriptures are available for free online at scriptures.info. You can either read them all there or you can connect to the website and it will read them to you in a variety of voices. You can have the scriptures read to you, all, all of these. You don't need to, to buy a leather-bound set. But they're also available exactly the same document through Amazon um, in a uh, softbound, not leather-bound copy, available uh, online. So the, they're, they're very accessible for free online. Um, they're available from Amazon in a paperback form. Um, but the leather-bound copies, uh, there was a limited print of those and... Um, they're virtually all spoken for, but Benchmark will have a handful. Wow. So, 
Well, that's good to know. So, yeah, yeah I'm just curious if there's anything else about, so you're going to try to build a temple? Do you have a location for that? Not yet, not yet. But uh, you're in the Salt Lake Valley, I assume? I assume not. No? Yeah, I assume not. I think there would be, um, the, the, the likelihood is there would be active interference, active opposition. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my view, the adversary cares about very little, but the one thing he intensely cares about is the establishment of something that reconnects heaven and earth in a way that fulfills prophecy and opens up the return of the Lord. Because the, the Lord's promises all have to be vindicated. And um, right now, there isn't, there isn't any possibility in all of the existing efforts. But uh, we're hoping to make the effort to accomplish just that. At which point, the adversary will feel threatened. And so I expect there will be some trouble and opposition in getting it done. And in this place in particular, um, I mean, why am I an excommunicated Mormon? I'm an excommunicated Mormon because they don't want people reading what I write. They don't want people listening to what I have to say. I'm not hostile. I'm just trying to get to the bottom of the correct story. I'm not picking a fight with anyone. Um, If I'm threatening, it's not because... I'm trying to overthrow anything. It's because I'm trying to understand correctly the sequence of events and the content of the restoration and the effort of the Lord to achieve an end goal that right now appears to have been compromised and hijacked into real estate development and and hierarchical um, servitude. I, it doesn't make any sense to me. I was happy to pay tithing, give them my money. I was happy to go to their meetings. They didn't want me there because they didn't want people to read what I have to write. And they certainly, I'm sure, uh, don't want this material becoming generally available because it, it, in the original iteration in Joseph Smith's day is markedly different than what we've got downtown in Salt Lake or in Independence, Missouri or in Monongahela, Pennsylvania or in wherever that group that left um, Boulder City, Colorado is now uh, headquartered. They're all um, off the beaten track. Would you consider yourself a kind of a unification movement where you're trying to unify we just, we just had a conference in Boise. We invited everyone to come from all the various uh, Latter-day Saint, uh, spoke, um, Church of Christ's uh, representative spoke, uh, Church of Christ Temple Lot, uh, Community, of Christ, Community of Christ, Church of Christ Temple Lot, uh, the group of, of Latter-day Saints out of Monongahela sent a representative. Yeah, we've had we've had Restoration Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saint group. They split off Community of Christ. They split off because of their desire to emphasize the Book of Mormon, while the Community of Christ is de-emphasizing the Book of Mormon. Um, I mean, anyone's welcome to come to the conferences, uh, and unifying is is unlikely because people don't really want to try and understand and live 
the restoration as it was promulgated in the revelations to Joseph in the Book of Mormon. They really just want a kind of social club atmosphere where they can come and be reassured that they belong to the one and only authentic, real church that will get you into heaven with a pass. And the the superficiality of the Latter-day Saint curriculum right now is so um, vacuous that I wouldn't waste my time sitting through two hours of their meeting. I mean, they spare you that third hour now, but it's still vacuous, insubstantial. You can't sustain life with the content that they provide at this point. It's been a series of subtractions. It's the opposite of restoration, which is additive. It's deductive, continually deductive. And um, so, no, I don't, I don't view anything that I've done as being or holding the potential to be popular, to be um, unifying. I figure every single group gets offended when you talk about what the straight and narrow path may really look like and what it may re- really require of you. So, no, I don't expect to unify. Um, I expect to be denounced by just about everyone. And the more they learn, the less they like what they're learning. <laughs> so, do you have, is it a big movement in Boise then? Because it seems like you go there a lot. I know there was a Boise rescue a while ago. Um, there's a lot of activity that's taken place in Boise, but, but the, the majority of people are far and wide. I mean... I had a um, I had a fireside week before last Sunday with a group in Europe that we did it online, mm-hmm. but there were people from Scotland and England and Holland and Slovakia and various places around Europe. There 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 are people all over. I'm corresponding actively with folks in Japan. We were supposed to have a conference in Japan. Um, when Japan shut down because of the the Chinese flu problem that they have going on, um, and and we couldn't we we couldn't get into the country for for that conference, but there it's now rescheduled to take place in October. Um, there are people in South America, there are people in Canada, there are people in Alaska, Hawaii. Um, there's a group uh, in Africa. Um, some of these groups stay under the radar in part because they don't want to be disciplined or excommunicated or rescued, um, but they only need to submit their names to the recorder's clearinghouse. They don't need to stand up and say, hey, please notice me. You'll want to kick me out of your church too. Um, because if, if, the, if they find that fellowshipping in an existing congregation of Methodists or Latter-day Saints or Catholics is um, gratifying or satisfying to them. There's no reason for them, other than being baptized and submitting their name to the recorder's clearinghouse, there's no reason for them to become 
um, a renegade among another people they want to associate with. If asked, they're probably going to teach something that will be markedly different than what other congregations believe, but I doubt they'll be running around saying, you're all screwed up and you're practicing priestcraft and you're going to hell. I doubt, although maybe there's one or two people like that. <laughs> but but I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't think so. Are you aware, so. are there any efforts to root out? I, 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 you probably don't like the term snufferites, but I, I know that term has been applied. Yeah. But um, people in active LDS congregations Sure. Been rooted out that say, hey, we like what Denver's doing. That kind yeah, of yeah, sure. There, are, there is kind of a oh yeah underground movement to, to kind of like the polygamists. To we we, we go after the polygamists. Yeah, yeah. The snufferites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty much. Two former bishops were. I met with them last night, um, who were chased off precisely because they were reading and talking about material that I had written. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, it's silly, really. But if you're not going to teach anything, if you're not going to try and understand what went on in the Restoration, and someone says, I would like to try and comprehend exactly what went on in the Restoration, I'm willing to explore that. But you're willing to still stay a member of this institution. Why would you care? I mean, you got to be awfully thin-skinned. You have to be extraordinarily insecure to say, if you think that way, you're so scary that I want you kicked out of our organization. Why does that scare you? Why does that alarm you? Why are you so thin-skinned? I mean, I take all kinds of foolish, practically obscene mischaracterizations made of me on the Internet and I don't react to any of them. Why do I care? I'm, I'm not what you think I am if you've envisioned this heretical monster gobbling up, you know, the souls of men. If that's what you think, yeah, go ahead and think that. But it doesn't change the reality. Your foolishness never defines me. So if they think I'm foolish, why would my foolishness define them? Why aren't they live and let live? So what, is, what would you say is the attraction to people who are attracted to your movement? Most people have awakened to the realization that what they're hearing institutionally, either in polygamous groups or Community of Christ or Latter-day Saint, they've awakened to the realization that what they're getting fed from institutional sources is decidedly uh, limited, misrepresentative, uh, lacking depth. It's not soul satisfying, and and these people are are you would call them the best that there there are. They're, they're the they're the the seminary teachers. They're the they're the bishops. They're the the gospel doctrine teachers. They're the the serious folks that have been on high councils. You'd be surprised at the the substantial, thoughtful, reflective character of the people that wind up saying, "Oh, I'd like to go there," because you you have you have essentially two choices: you either stay with something that you realize is not 
fulfilling and is insubstantial. And in many cases, it's compromised and it's, it's not doing its job. Or you say, I've lost my faith in the institution and therefore maybe the whole of it, the restoration itself is just a sham. Many people are saved from going to the whole of it as a sham by discovering that there is great depth, uh, profound insight, transcendently important material to be culled from the restoration. And if welcomed into your life, fundamentally change the way you view your existence here, the way you relate to other people here, and how meaningful your life becomes. Marriages have improved. People that were that were in conflict who come in a search for the truth reach a level of harmony between one another that is soul-satisfying. These aren't people that I've converted. I've been out here trying to piece together as much of the truth as I can piece together, and I've been joined by people who have helped in that process. The work of the volunteers that put this together, I'm one, two percent of the effort that got made to do this, Um, but I'm the beneficiary of it. The hard work, some of the hardest work was done by a fellow who's sitting here on the Joseph Smith translation material. Um, These are people on their own who have discovered that there, there are others like them, myself being one of them. And that has coalesced into now groups of people fellowshipping around the world together, donating tithing and helping one another with their financial needs and meeting in conferences from time to time. And now we have leather-bound scriptures to, to rejoice in. Well, and from what I understand, I'm trying to remember your other book, uh, The Second Comforter. Yeah, The Second Comforter. Because in that book, that's the one where you talk about how, and please tell me if I'm saying it wrong, but how to, how to have angels visit you. Is that right? Essentially, yes. Um, the Second Comforter, Conversing with the Lord Through the Veil, is a book that was written while I was an extraordinarily orthodox gospel doctrine teaching active Latter-day Saint, and its its curriculum, its agenda, its teaching is, is trying to get a faithful, active Latter-day Saint to rise up to a higher level of practice of the religion so that you can stir the heavens and have some connection be made between you and the heavens themselves. It was absolutely correct orthodox doctrine of the church when that book was written. The manuscript was submitted to Deseret Book. They spent seven months troubling over whether to print it or not, ultimately decided not to print it, but encouraged me to get it into print. Uh, It got into print, and it's an orthodox statement of, of the highest aspirations of the church at that time. That teaching has since been renounced. You mentioned the Boise Rescue one of the things they renounced up in Boise was the teaching of the Second Comforter, and they recently revised the footnoting in the um, Gospel of John to uh, eliminate the previous footnote that confirms the doctrine you find 
in the second comforter conversing with the Lord through the veil so that that, that footnote, that connection has now been abandoned. I've been encouraged to do a third edition of the book and to rewrite it from my current perspective, but I believe it is more important as an artifact to show what the orthodox teaching of the LDS Church was in 2006 when that book was printed in contrast to where they are today in 2020, abandoning what was once welcome, uh, accepted orthodoxy. It's now heretical and denounced. Well, to me, it would seem to be a bigger, that the, the second comfort would be a bigger problem than passing the heavenly gift because the church doesn't, yeah. it would be concerned that angels, and I guess the, the question. But, but if you read the book and you look at the footnotes, it's hard to say, well, someone should be in trouble for writing that. It's impossible. It's orthodoxy. I'm just trying to understand why passing the heavenly gift was the bigger problem. Because to me, your first book would be the bigger problem. But I don't, and I don't understand why. Um, I believe that passing the heavenly gift takes so much varnish off the institution's history that it makes it look like they they failed to perpetuate what was once here, and that they've fallen into disarray. But the end of that book, and I advise readers if they read it to go all the way to the end, the end of that book gives you reason to have continuing faith in the restoration and to remain affiliated and uh, believing. Um, but I think, I think their view was Brigham Young looks bad. Um, Territorial Utah looks bad. Um, Heber J. Grant looks awful, but I'm quoting Heber J. Grant's journals. That's he Heber talking about himself. It's actually Heber recording in his journal what his mother said to him about himself, and then Heber writing about you know what his own limits were. Because that was one of the issues was denigrating church leaders, right? That, that's why you excommunicated. Yeah, supposedly I denigrated church leaders, but how is it denigrating church leaders to quote the church leader about himself? If he's being candid in his journal and he's telling you, I've never had an inspired dreaming in my life. If he says that his mother thinks he's more concerned with money than he is with, with anything spiritual... I mean, if, if, if he's writing these things in absolute candor about himself in his diary, how is it denigrating him to quote him? It's understanding him. It's, it's grasping the concept that there's a man who is absolutely religiously insecure about his status before God, unsure about where he's going in the next life, standing as the president of the church. He was probably scared out of his mind every time he got up in a general conference to address people because he was hollow inside. He knew he was an empty suit, but he knew what he cared about, and he cared about managing the kingdom and making the kingdom function financially and like a business, and he did his best to do that. Whatever his skill set was, that's what he put on the altar, and that's what he had to alter. But religiously, there wasn't much there. 
And there are a lot of leaders, I think, sitting down in red chairs in Salt Lake today that would look at the comments about Heber J. Grant in passing the heavenly gift and would identify with that, would say, that's me. That's, that's, the, that's the awful position in which I find myself. I got nothing to offer. I mean, go listen to General Conference and tell me if you think that's vacuous or edifying, if it's enlightening. Joseph Smith, when he gathered a group together to give a talk in a conference, startled them with an abundant outpouring of new light and knowledge. Talked about how it was his role to always turn up some new thing in order to help edify and move the process along. Well, what we're moving along in a process, if there be one, is real estate development and um, community development and condominium development and land development and investments in multi-billion dollar funds. And in that sense, the kingdom is in magnificent shape. The kingdom is prospering at the hands of businessmen. Joseph Smith had a pending petition for bankruptcy at the time he died because he didn't know how to manage money. Joseph Smith was largely responsible for raising the hopes for the Kirtland Safety Society that was an abysmal business failure. Joseph Smith was not a good businessman. He was an awful businessman. In his store, when the poor and needy came in, he gave them away the inventory instead of collecting for it. The store was going bankrupt. Everything he touched, he failed at in business as as a businessman. And Brigham Young figured out how to monetize Mormonism and how to turn it into something that would would pay off. And the leaders ever since then, they learned some bad lessons. They learned some hard lessons. Heber J. Grant had to go to the bankers in New York to try and get money to make payroll to keep the employees of the church paid, including the compensated general authorities. And those were hard lessons in hard times. So then you have... Um, Boyd Packer calling the clerk, uh, the financial clerk of the stake before he arrives. And he says to the financial clerk, he wants to know the names of the top 10 tithe payers in the stake for him to interview when he comes out to call a new stake president. And the financial clerk gets upset about that and picks up the phone and calls and tells me what an obscenity this is. But they don't understand the history. The history is that you put, you ingratiate people with money to the kingdom because the kingdom has on occasion run into huge deficits. They were afraid of financial collapse on multiple occasions and were only rescued by bankers back east. Well, now that they turned things around in the post-World War II era and they've got billionaires and multimillionaires who um, are out there, you ingratiate them and you get their loyalty to the kingdom by having them called into positions of authority. They become your stake presidents. They become your bishops. They become your patriarchs. They become your 70s. They become your leaders because you you never know when you're going to have another hiccup. The uh, joke about the Jesse Knight building down at um, 
BYU when I was there. It was Jesse Knight was a uh, was a drinking, smoking, swearing Mormon, but he made a fortune in the mining business. And when uh, when he finally returned to activity in the church, his tithing that year uh, cleared all of the debts that the church had. Um, and so they have the Jesse Knight Building down at Brigham Young University in honor of of the tithe that the man paid. Um, there are pragmatic reasons why choices are made. They are based upon historical precedent. They have very good reasons behind them if you're trying to manage a trillion-dollar empire as the church leaders are. But you think about what they have. They've, they've undertaken a project in um, Florida on 133,000 acres of ground, approximately, the development costs will be about a trillion dollars by the time the project is finished. 500,000 people will live and work and buy groceries and go to school and do everything in life there in that community. They've started that project just a few years ago. There will be members of the Quorum of the Twelve who are not yet added to the Quorum who will come aboard while that project is underway, underway. They will live their entire tenure in the Quorum of the Twelve and die, and that project will not be finished. They will inherit it as a project. They will babysit through the completion, and they have no say in whether or not that's what is going to occupy an extraordinary amount of time. That's the way the church has wound up today. They've called good businessmen. In Eldon Tanner helped straighten out a whole host of problems, and they've gone to school on that. Um, some of the members of the Quorum of the Twelve were called specifically because of skill sets that they have in the business community, skill sets they have in banking, skill sets they have in law. Um, to his credit, uh, the current church president didn't come aboard with a background as an accomplished businessman, lawyer, or banker. He came as a surgeon. And that's an oddity among the, the group that's up there. Um, but I, I understand and I empathize with the plight. They, they really don't have elbow room. They've got an empire, and the empire demands attention. They have to give attention to it. And they're doing a marvelous job in paying attention to it. That was not what Joseph Smith set out to accomplish. It's not what the restoration was intended. And if Joseph Smith were here, my guess is he would bankrupt the church. Probably go out and find great causes, poor people, needs, fund whole hospitals, don't charge anyone anything, mm -hmm. help the benighted, run into the inner cities and see if he can bring peace and an end to the, the murdering and the violence that goes on there, improve schools, give away schools, do everything you can to fund an effort to try and rehabilitate an entire nation first and then the world second. I think Joseph would wreck the church. The kingdom would be in disarray. You would have, you know, the hat being passed to see if we can pay the utility bill for the ward building. It, 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 it wouldn't be the empire that we see it if Joseph were here, because his priorities were 
contrary was. Well, I do want to hear your final thoughts on there. Just one more question before we, we talk about Joseph Smith. Um, as far as, because I know there was a lot of uh, early gifts, I think my opinions in looking at, at your movement, you know, this idea of angels visiting you is very attractive to some people. Um, also, I was just curious about speaking in tongues. That was an early gift. Is that something that you've had in your, in your movement? Um, the way that Joseph had encouraged the tongue thing was to be able to communicate with other people. Um, yes, the answer is yes, but, but the way in which it's manifest itself is not something that we've, we've done a lot to publicize, advertise, or speak about. Signs generally attract the wrong sort of folk. Um, so while there are abundant things that have and do take place, they're not spoken openly too much because the wrong kind of people get attracted to that sort of stuff. And, and we're interested more in substantive, reflective, serious-minded people who are um, genuinely interested in trying to find and do the will of God. We lost a light. I know. <laughs> That's all right. We'll, we'll, we'll finish up. But um, So anyway, just wanted to hear your, your final thoughts on, on Joseph Smith. Yeah, I, I think Joseph is a very misunderstood character. Um, obviously, he felt confident in his role and in addressing the truth and in testifying about the things that he had experienced. But he was not, he was not the character that people make him out to be. Of the two of them, I think Emma was the stronger personality. And I think Joseph was deferential to Emma. Um, I think Joseph had a number of um, vulnerabilities, including the, um, the fact that he didn't regard himself as well enough educated or erudite to compete with a Sidney Rigdon. And so uh, he gave Sidney Rigdon a lot of deference and a lot of, um, a lot of opportunity to, um, to, to demonstrate leadership because Joseph respected uh, that he was better educated than him. He also respected that Emma was better educated than him. Um, he's, uh, he was shy around women. I mean, it, the, the, the idea that Joseph was some sexual aggressor um, around women, he, he was not that. Uh, he and Emma were close. They, they read the correspondence insofar as it's preserved between the two of them. He was devoted to her, and she was defensive of him and devoted to him. And of their two personalities, she was the stronger of the two. Uh, the idea that Joseph would, you know, hold her in defiance and get away with it um, doesn't match up with what you see uh, to the extent that we've got material to look at to examine their lives. Um, Emma was a, a force to be reckoned with. And Brigham Young wanted her as a, as a prize to be able to say, 
you know, he, he's got her on board too. And she would not allow herself to be used in that fashion to her credit. Uh, she went to the grave defending Joseph. Um, and Joseph, I think, was bold as a lion in defense of the things that came from God. And um, oftentimes uh, frustrated at people around him, but he kept interpreting their intent to be exactly like his own intent. So when he uncovers the character flaws of John Bennett and John Bennett cries and says, don't, don't, you know, let it out. I'll be a ruined man. And he betrays sincerity and he makes an attempt at suicide. Joseph Smith is convinced he's repented. He's got a good heart. He assumed a lot of people had a good heart who turned out not to have because he thought they were like he was. That was a flaw. He misread people. He was insufficiently cynical about the foibles of other humans. And ultimately, it wound up costing him his life. But he died with a conscious void of offense towards others because he committed very few offenses towards others particularly offenses towards women that he's currently charged with. People ought to be ashamed of the way they speak of him. God foretold that fools would hold him in derision, but the noble and the pure in heart and the wise and the prudent would constantly seek blessings under his hand. And part of his hand under which we seek blessings are in the books that we put in print because I would rather be regarded by the Lord as someone who is wise and noble and pure in heart than a fool to be held by God in derision, as uh, most people regarding Joseph Smith do. They haven't spent the time. They haven't taken the effort. They haven't done the work to figure it out. But Joseph was who Joseph said he was. And if anything, he understated all that he was to his credit. Anyway, thank you. It's been um, obnoxious, really, to be sitting here. <laughs> Let's not do this again. <laughs> All right. So, well, thank you, Denver Stuffer. I really appreciate yeah. you sitting down with us here in Gospel Tangents. You bet. The foregoing was recorded on June 28, 2020, and is presented here with permission from Rick Bennett, who conducted the interview. For more information about upcoming Christian fellowship conferences, meetings, and events, please visit restorationarchives.com. There you will also find a complete collection of Denver's talks, lectures, and papers available to download free of charge. You can request baptism by visiting bornofwater.org. If you have questions or ideas for topics that you would like to have covered in this podcast, please submit them for consideration to questions at denversnufferpodcast.com. This podcast is a volunteer effort produced under the direction of Denver Snuffer. We hope you'll share it with everyone interested in learning more about Christ, the coming Zion, and the restoration of authentic Christianity now underway in our time.